new episode of the podcast series, Talking APAC. APAC is short for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council, and we're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology courses offered in Australia by 41 universities and other higher education providers. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land, and we pay our respects to elders, past and present. My name is David Glanz, and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. APAC's role is to ensure that students studying psychology get top quality education so people in the community can have confidence that when they have an appointment with an appropriately trained and qualified practicing psychologist, they will get the best care and advice. Central to that is the assessment process. Every psychology education provider is required to have the accreditation of their psychology programs assessed every five years. But who carries out that process? What skills and experience do they bring to the table? Who do they talk to? Are they there as enforcers or advisors? The perfect person to answer these and other questions is Professor Alison Garten. Alison is a member of the APAC board and chairs its Accreditation Assessment Committee, the AAC, which is the engine room of the assessment process. So welcome, Alison. Thank you, David. Hello to you. Right, let's get underway. First up, can you tell listeners a bit about yourself? Because I know you've got a, a storied career in the discipline of psychology and tremendous experience in the assessment process. All right. Well, um, in terms of my career, I have done many different things. So it's not a straightforward trajectory or a traditional career. I've worked as a, an educator in university settings, but I've also worked in management with the Australian Psychological Society, where I was the executive director. I've worked in research positions, one of which some time ago morphed into, first of all, an operational, an acting operational position, and then an acting policy position in the, the WA Health Department. So that was a really interesting time. But since then, yes, I've, I've tic-tacked across a number of different career options, and I'm now in the happy state of being semi-retired. And I am also in the fortunate position where I'm sitting on a number of councils and boards, including APAC, of course. Uh, and able to contribute some of my experience, particularly around professional and research ethics, which is where I seem to have found my niche in uh, retirement. Excellent. Well, as you say, you've spent a professional lifetime teaching, advocating and providing professional support for psychology. So why is it important that educators meet the national standards? And why is accreditation and assessment important to everyone whose life is touched by psychology? Well, as you said in your introduction, that the educators meeting the national standards are, are there for them to provide quality education to all students, whatever the level. So we're starting at undergraduate level, we go right through to postgraduate level. And it's important that not only do they meet the standards, but they understand why they're meeting the standards and why the standards are actually there. And that's part of the process. It's not just a tick box arrangement. It's been, the, the standards have actually been around in various guises for a very, very long time. Accreditation started out as a way that the Australian Psychological Society 
realized that when they were checking uh, people's membership credentials that there must be an easier way of doing this and that was accrediting particular courses or that if a student had undertaken that course then it was known that that course met they weren't called standards in those days they were called guidelines but it was known that the that the students met those guidelines so over the decades and i'm talking a long time ago here that process has become refined and much more, I guess, in many respects, professional insofar as the, there's, a, there's a general knowledge around about what the standards actually are and what they're trying to achieve. So, and, and I guess over the years, I, I've been involved directly since the mid-1990s when we produced our first comprehensive set of what we could say, what we call guidelines. Prior to that, they'd been uh, the whole process had been ad hoc, and the, the guidelines as they existed were all separate for each particular level of training. So I inherited the comprehensive set of guidelines and was tasked with the job of implementing those. So I was the person who introduced the regular five-year cycle. So we had to make sure that educators were aware that they were going to be looked at on a regular basis and their programs were going to go through a process of evaluation and assessment. So it's important that educators understand also that we are in line with contemporary developments in the profession and the discipline. We, the, the standards have obviously evolved over the years and are now a set of um, standards that are very much outcome focus whereas before they were very much input focus so in, in numbers of staff and numbers of students and it was more of a tick box arrangement, whereas that's not the case now. So I think we've educated the educators along the way, I think. Accreditation and assessment is important, particularly now that we have the, the APRA arrangements where we have a national body that looks at both accreditation and uh, registration, whereas before they were separate. So the fact that we now have to make sure that our programmes are acceptable to the Psychology Board of Australia. And that was something new. While there had been sort of, I guess, partial recognition of the previous guidelines, this was a, a new and a formal arrangement. So it's important, in term, particularly in terms of reg- subsequent registration of psychologists, to demonstrate that they have met the educational standards. And in the case of postgraduate trained psychologists, the, um, I guess the practical side of education where they are competent to practice safely and that's really what we aim to do with the accreditation process there's much more of a an emphasis now on public safety as being the the single most important underlying aspect of accreditation thanks for that Uh, you chair apac's accreditation assessment committee so who's on the committee i mean i'm not expecting every single name but in general what does the committee comprise and what's its role? All right. Uh, traditionally, the committee comprises um, senior academic members from around the country. We try and get a balance geographically to some extent, if we can. Rather, we don't do it deliberately to the extent that we have to have one from everywhere. But um, there has to be some geographic distribution because it's still the case that it's not easy or easily recognised that people can go and visit HEPs in the same state and be objective about their accreditation status and their compliance with the standards. So we have a, so the senior members of the profession, I have to confess that in recent years, we have been involving less senior academics, but 
academics who've got a background in teaching and learning. So they know uh, all about the, the processes involved in teaching, teaching and learning at their HEP. Or in some cases, we've got some members actually on the committee at the moment who've worked in multiple HEPs over the years. So they can bring a, a, a good breadth of knowledge to the process but certainly senior members because we want recognition that this is an important process what do they what do they do well the aac is responsible for looking through and evaluating all the submissions that are made to apac so on the five-year cycle in preparation for site visits there is uh, an accreditation assessment, I guess self-evaluation against the standards. So the committee looks at, at those. I'm a member of the committee, acts as a team leader for the site visits that we undertake. We have a, we have many assessors who are not on the AAC, but every site visit has an AAC member as its team leader. So the team leader drives the process through to the completion of a report after the site visit. So the AAC then reviews the reports that are written and makes recommendations to the board of directors. Um, so we um, have a, a role in making sure that the outcomes of the assessment process are consistent. And that obviously leads to quite a bit of debate in our meetings. And we also provide advice, uh, not so much the AEC members nowadays, but because we've got staff in the office, providing advice to HEPs regarding the process. We also um, undertake evaluations out of cycle sequence when HEPs put up new, typically just uh, courses, uh, which they want to have accredited out of, out of cycle, as I said. Um, and so those are assessed by usually either one or two um, AEC members. We're now establishing a, a broader set of assessors, which is actually quite useful because the AEC members in recent years have actually had to commit quite a lot of time to the process uh, because it seems to sort of be relentless. We come around um, every five years, it's, it sort of starts all over again. But they're definitely senior members who are respected within the discipline. Now, during a site visit to an HEP, and uh, for those not in the know, that means higher education provider, What's it like for all those involved, assessors, academic and professional staff, external supervisors, current and past students? And what's the best way of striking a balance between professional detachment and collegiality? That's a very good question. I think now we've done site visits for, for the better part of 25 years. I think people now know what to expect. In terms of the assessors, the assessors now know they have to be very well prepared. They have to go in with an open mind, but also make sure that the evidence that they're being provided with is sufficient for them to make a judgment about whether the standards are being met or not. So that's the assessors. Meeting with the academic staff, we typically divide that up amongst the year levels. So we meet with some um, uh, you know, first year um, staff, uh, staff who teach in first year programs, second year programs, and so on. Um, often the staff are pretty much the same. The professional staff are usually the staff who provide the support to the programmes. So front office staff, we usually have uh, staff who are involved in assessments, uh, collation, exams, um, uh, assignments, that sort of uh, thing. We also have uh, staff who are, I guess, people who provide support for audiovisual and computer side of things. So and it depends how 
directly they are involved in that particular program, as many now are school-based or even university-based, um, we no longer see dedicated professionals, but we rarely see professional staff who are completely dedicated to the psychology programs. External supervisors are an interesting uh, group of people. They're the people who supervise the students when they're on external placements. Um, some of them have a very broad experience and have broad experience across a number of programs in that geographical location. And they're actually quite useful people because they can very often make comparisons about the quality of the, the training the students have received prior to them going out on placement. So they can make a, a comparative assessment. And students are also interesting. Uh, current students are supposed to be not selected by the staff. They're supposed to put their hands up independently, so they're supposed to be invited if they'd like to participate. So you sometimes get the disgruntled students in, in that mix. And the past students, they're more difficult to capture simply because they're usually not available at the particular time. Um, but with technology, we're actually able to Zoom them in nowadays. So it's, um, but they're usually fairly small in number. How we strike the balance is just being reassuring that we're not there to find fault, but we're there to provide assistance, provide advice, talk to them about what their issues actually are, show an interest in what they're doing, particularly innovations. It's uh, really important that we, yeah, we, we listen to what they've got to say and uh, retain an open mind uh, at all times. Yes, I mean, it's, I guess because I've been on many site visits over the years, although I don't do them now, it's, it's actually reasonably easy to do that. We've got better at doing that. We used to have a, a system where the host would take the assessment team out for dinner on one of the evenings. That's now, we don't do that anymore, so we can retain that detachment much more easily than we did in the past. There were certainly some assessors who were a bit uneasy about the potential blurring of boundaries there. So we now retain yeah, a complete detachment from staff, students and, and whoever's there. If there's a, some, any form of professional relationship, be it a research relationship, which it quite often is, that needs to be declared up front. Um, HEPs do have the opportunity to declare that and actually ask that a particular assessor not be part of the team that's coming. We try and make sure that there is no, yeah, as I say, it's generally a research relationship, but there may be other forms of um, professional or even personal relationships that need to be declared. So that, that also makes sure that we maintain a level of professionalism and detachment. Now, apart from cancelling the restaurant booking, what advice would you give to an education provider who's about to host a site visit? Well, as I said, most of them are actually been part of a site visit in the past so they kind of know what to expect with the with the new standards there has been a change and i think the change has been in terms of what they need to provide to the assessment team for the assessment team to make a sensible evaluation of the programs that they're looking at so there's nothing to be worried about, I suppose, would be the first thing. I don't think they, they, they're they now as concerned as they were. I know when we first did site visits, say, 25 years ago, there was a bit of the fear of the unknown. Institutions didn't know what to expect. And I don't think that in many respects the assessors knew what to expect either. And that's all been sort of refined over the years. And I think the institutions themselves, I think that the fear that they have mainly is around the students' 
and what they might say. And we're very keen, as I said before, on making sure that the students put their hand up themselves and they're not hand-picked by HEP itself. So I think that's where they're a bit concerned that they might there might be a rogue student who might voice some concerns. But if that's the case, then that's fine. I mean, the assessment team wants to hear that because if that's the case, then that's something that needs to be resolved uh, one way or the other. The education providers just need to make sure that they are prepared to answer questions. And I know it's, again, it's been different the last couple of years because the the, um, discussions amongst the different groups have taken place by Zoom, whereas previously, you know, there were people traipsing in and out of of rooms or we changed rooms or there was the opportunity, I guess, for the team to coalesce in between those particular meetings, whereas with Zoom, it's a little bit more difficult. But um, as far as I can understand, the Zoom visits have gone very well and there seems to be no diminution of quality of either the assessments or the reports. So I think we're, I mean, we're only partway through the rollout of the new standards and we're sort of evaluating them as we go along and we're able to discuss where there's some of the difficulties are. institutions are misinterpreting perhaps what the standard means and what the assessors are looking for, despite the, the evidence guide, which is only a guide. It's not actually meant to be definitive. Now, you mentioned that the assessment team is there to advise, not to find fault. You also mentioned that the process is focused on outcomes rather than inputs. So yeah. in practice, when the assessment team arrives at my department, what, yeah. what will they be looking for? What will they be looking for? They'll be looking for a friendly face for a start. I mean, sorry, I mean, one of the difficulties of going to these places is actually finding a room uh, and a friendly face. Um, it's not always clear unless we get a, a, a very detailed description of where to go. Certainly from my experience, what I'm looking for, certainly to begin with, is some sort of background information about where the department is at in terms of its development, whether there have been some major changes in the university structure and how that might impact on the delivery of the programmes. And that seems to happen rather commonly, unfortunately. The vice-chancellors are very keen on reshuffling. We like to get a sense of where the school or department sits in relation to the hierarchy of the university and who holds the purse strings to some extent, because that's actually quite important in when we make our assessment of what the programmes are able to deliver and which programmes they are, uh, the school or, or department is able to offer. So that's what we start looking for. And that gives us a context within which we can then conduct the evaluations of the particular programmes and also the resources that are available to the programme and how those are managed, because that those are important. And I know we said we're looking for outcomes and we're looking for outcomes, but they're based on some of the relationships within the HEP itself. So in order to achieve outcomes, they've got to have some sort of schools and departments have to have some kind of support and recognition within the institution itself. I take your point about uh, finding the right room. I've worked at a big university and it seems like every building has its own quite separate numbering system. So it's um, it's it's a challenge. I'm not trying to be flippant, but we have had some we have had some challenges. <laughs> I'm, I'm not being flippant either. It is a real challenge. When the team sends its report through to the AAC, and as you say, 
only one member of the AAAC would have been part of the site visit. So for everybody else, they're relying on that report. What are the issues that are most likely to flag concern to the committee? All right, I'll just backtrack there. Sometimes there is another AAC member on the site visit, but they're not the team leader. Okay. So mixing and matching that goes on. But yes, the team leaders will very often flag issues that they would like us to discuss. For example, the meeting that we held yesterday, in fact, we had three issues which were flagged during the reporting of the reports because the team leaders wanted clarification around a certain point. So the issues that are most likely to flag concern are, at the moment, issues around uh, resourcing of the postgraduate programmes, appropriate resourcing of the postgraduate programmes. In particular, many HEPs have an internal uh, psychology clinic and how important that is regarded within the institution itself seems to be variable and there are often there seem to be concerns around and these are around the clinic the operation of the clinic and that's around patient safety so client safety is paramount there and also around client safety are the manner around logbooks and how they are completed and compiled. There seems to be a certain amount of variability across schools and departments as to what's in a logbook. And I think that's certainly going to be something that we're going to be discussing into the future. The other issues that are flagged at the moment are the issues around both um, the teaching of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural uh, and cultural responsiveness and the uh, teaching around interprofessional learning. Now, these are both new in the new standards. And it's not so much the teaching of those issues. It's the, actually the assessment of those issues because many of the schools and departments have actually got some quite good teaching arrangements around cultural responsiveness, particularly in relation to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. But it's how those elements are then assessed uh, within the programme and how those are built upon from level one right through to the postgraduate programmes. And I think that's, we're beginning to see some changes and I was pleased to see in some of the material that we had for the meeting that was held just yesterday, that number of the schools are really tackling that particular issue. Interprofessional learning is a little bit more tricky because most of the schools and departments say, well, that occurs out in placement when they're out working in teams. But it builds on earlier material around interpersonal communication, which is actually something that's um, highlighted, particularly at um, the honours level and beyond, is something that can be assessed. But I think, again, there's some difficulty in what's the best way of assessing interpersonal communication. So those are the, 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 the big issue, the big ticket issues at the moment as to what, as, as, as to the issues that are flagging concern. Okay, that's really useful. Thank you. Now, the AAC, when it receives a report, it's not a yes or a no. There's a series of options on recommendations that can be made to the board. Could you run us through those options and how quickly, if there are conditions applied, higher education provider can meet those conditions and move on? Okay. The, the, the main two are accreditation without conditions and accreditation with conditions. There are another couple which are accreditation revoked, which is not 
used because it's, I, find, I don't think I've ever seen it used. And accreditation expired, which is when a programme ceases to exist. So, and it's still accredited. What we usually find with that case is that programmes go into teach out and remain accredited until the students are, are um, have completed. Having said that, most programmes don't come through without conditions. It's rare that that's the case. There have been, and obviously there are examples where that's been the case, particularly in the past, when it, say, it was much more of a, an input-driven uh, process and you could sort of tick a box and say, yes, they meet that, yes, they meet that. Whereas with the outcomes, it's a little bit more, um, yes, yeah, you say it's not black or white, it's much more grey. So the timeline around accreditation with conditions really very much depends on how serious the team leader and the rest of the team think the condition that's been placed is. So, and it's very much around, again, uh, client safety. So if there are issues around potential risks to client safety, for example, in the psychology clinic where there may be no duress alarms, for example, or there is no supervisor immediately available. Um, so sort of then a, a tight timeline is put on, on that. Where they're not as severe, I suppose, the school or department has a longer timeline. But if they're affecting students in particular and, and affecting clients, potential clients, then a much tighter timeline is given. I can't actually say exactly what is given because it's very much a discussion between the team and the APAC office and what is thought to be reasonable. And sometimes those are not met simply because the uh, school or department can't meet that the tight timeline and, ex and the extensions are possible as long as some progress towards meeting the conditions uh, can be seen. So, I mean, I think it's a reasonable process. It's not, it's, it's not overbearing. It allows the uh, school or department some time, a reasonable time in which to make some changes. We've also, in recent times, moved some of the conditions to monitoring requirements rather than putting them on as conditions. And that's in particular in relation to benchmarking, which has proved to be a little bit more tricky than originally thought, simply because in the previous standards, uh, benchmarking was very much just the thesis component of the particular programs, but it's now all assessments. And finding partners of sort of similar status within the sort of, you know, the hierarchy of universities that exist in Australia has proved a bit tricky. And similarly, COVID-19 put a bit of a break on, on the uh, process. And so instead of asking for deadline after deadline after deadline for those, we have asked for that to be monitored and to be reported on in the annual reports. So that's one example where we sort of moved to a different process. But still expecting that the, 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 you know, some, some progress has been made towards meeting the condition. Thanks. That's, that's really useful information. Finally, I mean, given your experience, both with APAC, but obviously much more broadly, um, perhaps we could take a moment for you to tell us what your, your take is on the health of the psychology discipline in the higher education sector. How do, how do you see things at the moment? Um, at the moment, it's, psychology is a bit of a state of flux. And I think the major problem that we're seeing with psychology programs at the moment is the lack of diversification in the postgraduate programs. We used to have a whole range of different postgraduate programs, but with cuts to uh, 
particularly universities, we're seeing a reining in of programs other than clinical psychology programs. And that's a bit of a pity because it's meaning that the profession is becoming much more focused, if you like, on uh, clinical psychology at the expense of all the other areas of practice endorsement. I mean, there are nine. And for some of those, uh, there are very limited opportunities for postgraduate training. But by contrast, at the, at the undergraduate level, so the, the first three years and the fourth year, so the, what we call level one and level two programs, we're seeing a great diversification of opportunity with the new standards. The previous standards were quite limited in terms, particularly in terms of nomenclature of programs. And that historically was deliberate because of where we were at 25 years ago, there was a multitude of different names for psychology programs and nobody knew what any of them actually were. So we reined that in at that point, but it's now opened up again. And we're beginning to see some opening up at the level three, so the Master of Professional Psychology programs. And we're also seeing the start of level four standalone programs. So that's like the sixth year of the, in this case, mainly the clinical master's program. We're beginning to see some of them come up and they are providing some challenges both to the school of department but also to the AAC as to how what we think we're looking for and what's in those programs and how particularly how entry into those new level four standalone programs is assessed because there's an expectation that students who enter those programs will either have a, a wealth of experience or will have completed a, a level three program. So we see, in many respects, we're seeing an opening up of the educational opportunities, coupled with a narrowing of the options in terms of opportunities for studying for area of practice endorsement and anything other than clinical psychology. But the enrolments are still up. Uh, psychology is still quite healthy in terms of enrolments across the country. People, I mean, it always has been historically here in Australia. It's been healthy at um, the undergraduate level. A lot of people take it because it's something that's a bit different what they do at school, although we, we now teach psychology in the schools, of course, but it's not a subject that's required for entry into universities. It's, uh, well, it's, it certainly isn't here in WA. So, yeah, we've got the two sort of forces at work out there, um, but I think in general the uh, psychology is pretty healthy. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for your time, Alison. If people want to read more, head to our website at Psychology Council, that's all one word, dot org dot au otherwise we look forward to you joining us for our next episode and until then goodbye <laughs> <laughs>